When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I know I'm human. And if you were all these things, then you'd just attack me right now. So some of you are still human. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to. But it's vulnerable out in the open. If it takes us over, then it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's one. Hello, movie viewers and movie lovers. My name is Tim Williams, and I'm the creator and host of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. We talk about all the great and sometimes not so great movies from the 1980s. From blockbusters to cult classics to lesser-known treasures we discovered on cable TV or the now-defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter which flick we choose for each episode, we'll have a lot of fun sharing our memories, discussing our favorite scenes, and even learning some behind-the-scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. So let's jump right into today's episode. Thanks for listening. John Carpenter directed a slew of classic films including Escape from New York, They Live, Halloween, and Big Trouble in Little China. One of his most celebrated works is this 80s flick. Upon release, the bleak horror movie was panned by critics as boring and overindulgent with its violence. The masses barely bothered heading to the movie theaters to see it. In the years since, however, it has found an audience who recognize its excellence. The atmosphere, special effects, and performances are all top-notch. So grab your box of flares, a bottle of J&B Rare Blend, and don't freak out when we test your blood sample as Ron West and I discuss The Thing from 1982 on this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. So welcome in, everybody. Uh, happy New Year. Welcome 2022. No better way to kick off uh, a new season of the podcast and a new year by talking about a movie that's filled with paranoia of people afraid of something that's uh, infected other people they know, but they can't see it. And the people don't know if they're infected or not. And so it causes all this hysteria. So what a great pick. Thanks Ron for being a part. <laughs> always, a, always a pleasure. And certainly, uh, certainly a fitting uh, topic for us uh, in this day and age. Yeah. Yeah. So no, this, this was, uh, I wanted to pick this one, you know, in January, cause it's, it, you know, we think about a, a, a movie that takes place in winter, uh, I don't think there's another movie as wintry as uh, The Thing because they're basically stuck in Antarctica and covered by snow. Uh, like you almost feel cold watching this movie because everyone is freezing throughout the movie. Yeah, that's that, that's definitely something that comes across watching the movie. Everyone layered up in their uh, Antarctic uh, uh, gear. Um, I do remember uh, you know pulling the blanket up a little little closer when I watched <laughs> it this week. Uh, you just you feel a little a little cold. And it also, um, I think, says something. I'm sure we'll probably touch on this a little bit later. But like with the acting performances, because mm-hmm. um, there's so little you can see of the actors because they most of the time have on all these clothes. So you just get sometimes not even the full head, just <laughs> part of the face. Is right. What you're, right. Is, is, is all you're getting. Yep. And so and I think uh, I don't know if it was on my notes, but I think there are a few scenes that John Carpenter said he moved to outdoors, even though it was tough on them to film because it was so cold and the actors, but he didn't want a movie where everybody had conversations inside a box. Like, you know, there was only so many rooms they had in indoors. So they did a couple of scenes outside just to kind of break up the, uh, the scenery. So, uh, but I, I didn't give a proper introduction, but welcome once again, Mr. Ron West to the podcast. He's always a favorite to have on the show. So welcome, Ron. 
Well, thank you for calling me uh, uh, one of the favorites to have on the show. You know, as you were doing that introduction at the beginning of the movie, I was thinking, or, or at the beginning of the podcast, I was thinking as you were done, like right there is where the theme song needs to go. <laughs> like, you know, we, we need to get an 80s view uh, theme cost. Maybe you and I will write one uh, um, a la uh, Andy from Parks and Rec. Maybe we'll write oh, uh, yeah. 80s flick flashback uh, theme song to insert right there. That will have to end with spread your wings and fly. Spread your wings and fly. <laughs> yes, uh, Parks and Rec. Uh, and no, I'm not going to plug the other podcast, but Ron and I are enjoying a very fun podcast <laughs> about Parks and Recreation. And I've actually gone back and been watching during the break, being off this week. I've, I've been watching, going back and watching the episodes of Parks and Rec that are even more to enjoy now that we've listened to this podcast where they talk about it. But uh, that's a totally different non 80s subject. But, but good idea. We'll, we'll work on a theme song. Yes, sir. <laughs> All right. So, you know, the drill, when did you see the thing for the very first time? Oh, now, usually when you ask me this, I've, I've in fact, I think every time you've asked me this, I've seen <laughs> whatever movie we're talking about in the movie theater. That yeah. was not the case with the thing. Yeah. Uh, the thing I came to much later, the thing was a, a VHS rental for sure. Um, so it would have been, this came out in 82. It was probably more mid eighties uh, yeah. by the time that, that uh, I saw this. And then um, I'm, I've probably seen it one other time in my life and then until watching it this time. Like, this yeah. is not something that's been in my regular, regular rotation. Yeah. What I about just, you? When did you, uh, when did you see it? I actually just watched it for the first time uh, oh, last year now, because it was in 2021, but it's been within a year. Uh, of course, it's popped up. You know, you start an 80s flick podcast. You're going to look over, you know, so many lists of yeah. 80s movies you have to see. And of course, with several of my co-hosts, you included, that are big fans of horror, the thing pops up on just about every list of great horror movies from the 80s. And of course, we all know that horror is not my go-to genre, but I enjoy right. John Carpenter, as we, we talked about. Um, we've talked about Big Trouble in Little China already. Uh, we've talked about Halloween. So uh, I, I'm aware with the director, and I was like, you know what? I really want to see this movie because I've heard it's really, really good. So um I think it was available on one of the streaming sites that I had a couple, you know, back in the summer, maybe. And uh, I watched it then. And, and honestly, I loved it. I was like, this is a fantastic movie. It's much better than I expected. It's not, yeah. you know, it's not a slasher movie. It's not your typical, you know, what I consider a typical today horror movie. It's much more psychological, even though it's a, a, a kind of a monster alien type movie. Uh, but it was really well done. And I can see why it's, regarded as one of the best horror movies of the decade if not made you know since so right the i mean you and i've talked about you know friday the 13th and nightmare on mm -hmm. elm street some of these iconic uh horror movies from the you know the late 70s and the 80s <clears throat> and when you watch those they don't necessarily hold up that well as right great, right uh movies are, are really enjoyable movies in fact we find ourselves saying <laughs> oh man, this is pretty bad. Right, uh, right. But you don't, you don't get that with the thing. The thing is, the thing is uh, enjoyable. I mean, um, you know, the, the special effects, um, I mean, they're, they're still obviously special effects, you know, right, but right. there's no CGI, you know, it's mm -hmm. all stuff that they actually created and it's, it's well regarded in, in that, uh, in that respect. And um, yeah, definitely a, a much more enjoyable uh, film one of the more enjoyable films that hold up uh, in the horror genre from that time yeah exactly so you said you only saw it one one other time since seeing it in the theater so when was that like how long had it been since you saw it before we were watching it for the podcast i think um my late wife denise and i had watched it um she would she would watch horror movies when we first got married so that would have been in the mid 90s and uh, i think we uh, watched it um one night in this little apartment in Merritt Island where we lived. Um, and then not too long after that, I took her to an adult haunted house in Orlando <laughs> at, uh, called Terror on Church Street. And right. after that, she basically never watched another scary movie <laughs> again. Um, and so that affected my ability to watch a lot of scary movies right. over the, over the years. But um, yeah, that was, that was the only other time. Um, but uh, well, well, we'll, we'll circle back. Okay. So has I this has Sydney seen it? Your daughter? Because I know she's I like. I think a, Sydney has seen this. Yeah, no, and she a, wasn't. She's here. a horror movie fan, so. Oh, she loves horror movies. If there's a movie with some creepy kid crawling upside down on a ceiling somewhere, <laughs> she's she's seen it uh, in in English and Spanish. Um, you know that's that's her uh, 
think she we have a she you know she'll sign into my uh, uh, account. Um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of which which account is one of the accounts where she she's not able to set up her own separate user. Oh, okay. And every time I go on there, she has the the English subtitles on, mm-hmm. and I'm like, why are you reading? <laughs> why are you reading? <laughs> the english uh subtitles and, and uh, uh i mean her girlfriend spanish so um uh you know and then there's the other times i've turned on and the subtitles are in spanish mm-hmm. and uh so so anyway so that's what i mean she'll watch them all and it's always you can it's always a movie that i'm not going to watch i don't those movies kind of <laughs> freak me out a little bit i don't i don't right. like the like those but um no i'll mention it to her she should be home on monday uh, or uh, tomorrow, I think either tomorrow or Tuesday. So I'll ask her about it and see if see if she wants to to watch it. Um, but no, I don't. I don't think she showed. This was not one I showed her when I went gotcha. and showed her gotcha. Children of the Corn and you know Nightmare on Elm Street and of course the Halloween, the Friday the Thirteenth, and all those. Um, this was not one that um, that uh, that I uh, showed her. And by the way, of all those, just so I can say real quick. Uh, the one that holds up the least was children of the corn. Yeah. We it talked was, about that. <laughs> yeah. I, when I, when I watched it as a child, I, I was terrified of that. When I watched it showing it to her, I was like, one, this is a terrible movie. <laughs> two, it is not scary at all. Uh, but I guess when you are a kid and kids are killing people, you're like, yeah, that's kinda, yeah. you know, but oh, yeah. anyway. Yes. All right. Well, let's dive into story origin and pre-production uh, for this. So uh, feel free to jump in. If I, if you did any research and, and see something I missed. So uh, development of the film began actually in the mid seventies when producers, David Foster and Lawrence Terman suggested the universal pictures adaptate an adaptation of the 1938 John W. Campbell novella who goes there. It had been loosely adapted once before in Howard Hawks and Christian Nyby's 1951 film, the thing from another world, but Foster and Terman wanted to develop a project that stuck more closely to the source material. So screenwriters Hal Barwood and Matthew Robbins held the rights to make an adaptation, but passed on the opportunity to make a new film. So Universal obtained the rights from them. In 1976, Wilbur Stark had purchased the remake rights to 23 RKO Pictures films, including The Thing from Another World, from three Wall Street financiers who did not know what to do with them in exchange for a return when the films were produced. Universal, in turn, acquired their rights to remake the film from Stark, resulting in him being given an executive producer credit on all print advertisements, posters, television commercials, and studio press material. So John Carpenter was first approached about the project in 1976 by co-producer and friend Stuart Cohen, but Carpenter was mainly an independent film director, so Universal chose the Texas Chainsaw Massacre director, Tobe, is it Toby or Tobe? Do you know? Toby Hooper? Um, I, I think it's Tobe, but Tobe. I'm not 100% okay. sure. All right, we'll go with that. Tobe Hooper, as they already had him under contract. The producers were ultimately unhappy with Hooper and his writing partner, Kim Hinkle's concept. Hooper's version would have been drastically different from the Carpenter version, featuring an alien that did not shapeshift or assimilate and following an Ahab-like character named the Captain who goes on an epic quest to find and kill the Thing. The film would have served as its own film and as both a remake and sequel to the 1951 film with little influence from John W. Campbell Jr.'s novella, which Hooper openly found to be, quote unquote, boring. Hooper also wanted the film to be a horror comedy with slapstick humor. Yeah, that would have gone over great. (laughs) It was pitched as terrible. Yeah, it was pitched as a swashbuckling action adventure epic, a modern day Moby Dick set not in the ocean, but at the bottom of the world, Antarctica. Producers Drew Turner and Stuart Cohen were appalled by the pitch script and eventually fired Hooper, with Cohen later saying, we avoided a disaster. It would have been one of the worst movies ever made. And that sounds about right. After several more failed pitches by different writers and attempts to bring on other directors, such as John Landis, the project was put on hold. Even so, the success of Ridley Scott's 1979 science fiction horror film Alien helped revitalize the project, at which point Carpenter became loosely attached following his success with his initial slasher film, Halloween, released in 78. Carpenter was reluctant to join the project for he thought Hawk's adaptation would be difficult to surpass, although he considered the film's monster to be be unnotable. Cohen suggested that he read the original novella. Carpenter found the creepiness of the imitations conducted by the creature and the questions it raised interesting. 
He drew parallels between the novella and Agatha Christie's mystery novel, And Then There Were None, and noted that the story of who goes there was timely for him, meaning he could make it true to his day as Hawks had in his time. Carpenter, a fan of Hawks' adaptation, paid homage to it in Halloween, and he watched The Thing from Another World several times for inspiration before filming began. Carpenter and cinematographer Dean Cundy first worked together on Halloween, and The Thing was their first big-budget project for a major film studio. So it had its uh it had some some struggles to get there but it finally got there so i'm glad they brought carpenter on i mean you really have a hard time imagining this with anyone other than carpenter once you you see it in his yeah. kind of special blend of doing things and 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 the sound and, and mm-hmm. the music there are times you hear things on there that you even if you didn't know he was involved you would say <laughs> I john carpenter involved with this movie right um, right so yeah it took the, took them a minute to kind of to kind of get it going um but like you said, um, I'm glad it worked out the way that it did. And now these messages. <sighs> what seems to be the problem, pal? There's just so much pain in the world. So many issues. I don't think I can bear it. Well, friendo, it sounds like you could use a dose of pop culture roulette. Pop culture roulette? What's that? Some sort of pop culture themed podcast or something? That's right, sonny boy. When hope seems far, dive into some PCR! But I already get my entertainment news from Variety. Huh, that's pretty good. If you're a chucklehead, PCR gives you news you need, condensed, unfiltered, and raw, from three nerds who know a little something about something. Wow, okay, sign me up! That's the spirit. Pop Culture Roulette. New episodes every Monday, available on all major podcast directories. All right, cool. Well, let's jump into casting. So uh, I'm going to try not to spend as much time <laughs> on casting as I did on uh, Christmas Vacation, <laughs> the last movie, that last episode we did, but it had such a, a big cast. And this one, you know, I, I, I guess because you have certain characters that don't last very long in the movie. You kind of forget they're in the movie, but I didn't want to completely leave them out, but we'll talk about some a little bit more than others. So, uh, but of course, let's start with Kurt Russell, who was involved in the production before being cast as McCready, helping Carpenter develop his ideas. Russell was actually the last actor to be cast in June of 1981, by which point second unit filming was started in Juneau, Alaska. Carpenter had worked with Russell twice before, but he wanted to keep his options open. Discussions with the studio involved using other actors like Christopher Walken, Jeff Bridges, or Nick Nolte, who were either unavailable or declined, and then Sam Shepard, who showed interest but was never pursued. In part, Carpenter cited the practicality of choosing someone he had found reliable before and who would not balk at the difficult filming conditions. It took Russell about a year to grow his hair and beard out for the role. At various points, the producers also met with Brian Dennehy, Chris Christopherson, John Hurd, Ed Harris, Tom Berenger, Scott Glenn, and Fred Ward. Most of them passed on the idea of starring in a quote-unquote monster film. This is one of the rare times when, as you mentioned, other people who are up for the role that you could see, I think, several of those other people in this role. Mm -hmm. And part of that is because I think there's, like, none of the acting performances in this are are iconic or because so much of it is kind of hidden by the cold gear and things Mm -hmm, that they're wearing, mm -hmm. but Kurt Russell's beard like should have its own (laughs) billing in this movie. It is an, as a man with a beard, uh, you as well. It is an impressive beard. And clearly at one point, as they show the beard, Mm -hmm. uh, it has been blown dry. I mean, it is puffy and full (laughs) and just beautiful. I mean, you can part that thing and feather it to the side, like a Farrah Fawcett (laughs) hairdo from the 1970s. It is a magnificent beard. Yes, I agree. And then of course, when they, you know, they make it all frozen from, you know, giving the little uh, ice and snowy effect on, you know, on the beard gives it even more kind of uh, elegance, I guess you would say to it. That's a good way to put it. But there's <laughs> there's someone else's who you're getting ready to come to whose lack of facial hair yes, is also alarming yes, in this movie. Yes, we'll we'll get there. So, but anyway, but yeah, I I, I agree with you. They're like, let's see, uh, I could see Nick Nolte. Uh, absolutely i could see uh fred ward for sure even though he was you know a lot less known than uh chris christopherson of course another great beard of the 70s and 80s great beard yeah i think he could have pulled that off as well so uh but yeah but i think kurt russell is a phenomenal choice uh for the role and i you know 
it's like every time I see a Kurt Russell movie, I am just amazed at how great he is and whatever he's in and how he can adapt to that character. Like you think of Kurt Russell and you think, oh, I know what kind of character he plays, but then he, he has such wide range. You kind of forget about it until you start seeing the different movies he's been in. So he can do comedy, he can do action, he can do, you know, a movie like this, you know, drama. So I just, I think Kurt Russell is kind of an unsung hero in, yeah. in the acting world because he doesn't get, a, I think, enough praise for the, the roles that he's done. Maybe he hasn't gotten the recognition of the awards. He can do we it. Kind of take him for granted. Maybe a, a, yeah. a jack of all trades, master of none uh, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, he's, could he's, be. He's, he's not great and award worthy in anything, but he's been good and solid in everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you think he doesn't, he doesn't get uh, tied down to one set kind of character. He, even though he's, he's almost like an everyman character, it would seem as well. He plays that really well as well. So maybe that's why he's uh, you kind of see yourself in him in all the characters he, he portrays. Maybe. Yeah. He'll always be wider. Always, always, <laughs> always. You're just going to stand there and bleed. <laughs> Oh, if Tombstone was only an 80s movie. But anyway, I digress. We talk about it. All right. So moving on, Carl Weathers and Bernie Casey were considered for the role of Childs. And Carpenter also looked at Isaac Hayes, having worked with him on Escape from New York. Ernie Hudson was the front runner and almost cast until they met with Keith David. The Thing was David's first significant film role. And coming from a theater background, he had to learn on set how to hold himself back and not show every emotion his character was feeling. He got help from other actors like Richard Macer and Donald Moffat in particular. So talking a little bit more about Keith's work, he most recently co-starred with Chadwick Boseman in 21 Bridges in 2019. Additional titles include the Academy Award-winning films Crash in 2004 and Platoon in 86. He is widely recognized for appearing in the highly acclaimed films Disney's The Princess and the Frog in 2009, Requiem for a Dream in 2000, Minute Work in 1990, Of Course They Live in 88, and there's something about Mary in 1998. So uh, Keith David's had a very long and established career coming back, coming from this. Yeah, I bet if you look at his filmography list, it's just one yeah. of those that just goes on and on and on yeah. and on and on. Yeah, but he's always good in, in those roles. I think it was interesting that he came from a theater, not interesting, that he came from a theater background, but to think that this is his first movie coming from a theater background because I don't think he overplays it, you know, where you would think somebody coming from the theater. So it was good. The other actors were helping him kind of, you know, adapt to that transition from stage to screen. Yeah, I, I agree. He's great at this. And he's, he's got one of those iconic voices. too. That yeah. Just yeah. Stands out on everything that he's in. Exactly. So, all right. Then we got Richard Macer as Clark. I don't know if it's Macer or Masur. Right, Masur was a well-known television actor in the late seventies and early eighties with recurring roles on Rhoda and One Day at a Time. Other 80s flicks you may have seen him in are Head Office in 85 with Judge Reinhold and Danny DeVito, Heartburn in 86 with Jack Nicholson and Marilyn, Meryl Streep, Shoot to Kill in 1988 with Sidney Poitier and Tom Berenger. That's a great movie. You haven't seen it. And, of course, I remember most from License to Drive in 88 with the two Corys, Haim and Feldman. <laughs> I don't remember him from that, but I think we all remember that, <laughs> that movie. Yeah, he was kind of known for for being the dad. Uh, he played a good dad in that. But have you ever seen Shoot the Kill? Do you even have? Are you familiar with that one? I don't know if I talked about talked to you about that one before or not. I don't remember that off the top of my head. I'd have yeah. to read some more about it. To yeah, it's a it's a good still shots. It's a good thriller. Uh, that was when I remember seeing it in the theater. It's hard to find now. And actually, I think in some countries it goes under a different title. Uh, but anyway, but if you can find it, definitely check it out. It's worth seeing. Sidney Poitier okay. and Tom Berenger are great uh, in it. So uh, so Richard Masur and Keith David discussed their characters in rehearsals and decided they would not like each other. <laughs> Masur worked daily with the wolf dog Jed and his handler, Clint Rowe, during rehearsals as Rowe was familiarizing Jed with the sounds and smells of people. This helped Masur and Jed's performance on screen as the dog would stand next to him without looking for his handler. Masur described his character as one uninterested in people, but who loves working with dogs. He went to a survivalist store and bought a flip knife for his character and actually used it in the confrontation with David's character. Masur turned down a role in E.T., the extraterrestrial, to actually play Clark in this movie. I don't really know much of anything about the people from this cast. T.K. Carter yeah. was the only other person that I 
that I knew other than the, the, the one then, I'm still waiting on you to mention. All right. Yeah. Well, I'm, that's when that was next. All right. <laughs> so for Blair, the team chose the then unknown and mustacheless Wilford Brimley as they wanted an everyman whose absence would not be questioned by the audience until the appropriate time. The intent with the character was to have him become infected early in the film, but off screen so that his status would be unknown to the audience concealing his intentions. I think you'd get a kick out of this. Carpenter actually wanted Donald Pleasance, but it was decided he was too recognizable to accommodate the role. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I could have, I could see him doing that, that as well. Yeah. Uh, I did not know. I was watching this movie for 15 minutes before I realized it was Wilford Brimley because <laughs> Wilford Brimley with no facial hair. Right. Is not recognizable. Doesn't look like Wilford Brimley. <laughs> it's not. And he, he said something and, and the first time he spoke, he he had a couple like one line. Yeah, parts. yeah, yeah. And then the first time he strung together several sentences mm-hmm. in a row, where you really got to hear that voice. Yeah. And I, I went, wait a minute, is that Wilfred Brimley? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I, I went and looked it up real quick and was like, oh my gosh, I've never seen him without a mustache, without yeah. Yeah. anything before. Um, he looked like just such an average person. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, that that mustache looking, is iconic yeah, to yeah. his look. They were looking for the everyman. That's what they got. But yeah. Um, I'll remember read some of his other credits uh, why, where people may know. Rimley went on to appear in The Natural in 84, of course, yep. Cocoon in 85, as well as its sequel, Cocoon, The Return in 88. But he's probably most well-known as a spokesperson for Quaker Oats Oatmeal and for the diabetes testing supplies company Liber- Liberty Medical. Liberty Medical. <laughs> we could almost do a full, not a full episode, we could do a good 15, 20 minutes just about the life of Wilford Brimley. If you want to learn some stuff, go go go. Just do a little research on Wilford Brimley of his life before he was an actor. It's fascinating. He he lived a full life. Uh, and one of the cool things, because oh, I'll say this, he was actually a cowboy. Like that's how he got. Like he worked on ranch and and work with horses and animals and stuff. So uh, they said he was the only person on set that didn't get squeamish during the scenes of like them. Uh, you know, disassembling the the alien because they were using like real animal parts or you know intestines and stuff like that. But he just like he was the only person was like, oh yeah, I get my hands and let me do it. So everybody else was kind of real squeamish about it. But he was like, ah, very interesting. So I'm reading some of the stuff about him right now. As you're saying oh. that, <laughs> yeah. So the other one you noticed, stand-up comedian actor T.K. Carter was cast as Nalls. Is it yeah, Nalls? But comedian Franklin I also came to read for the role. Instead, he delivered a lengthy speech about the character being a stereotype, after which the meeting quickly ended. So I'm not even sure I know who Franklin Ajay is. But anyway, uh, T.K. Carter had done some TV work before being cast in The Thing, but went on to appear in several other movies like Runaway Train in 85 with John Voight, He's My Girl in 87, and A Rage in Harlem in 1991. So I think he's probably more known for a lot of TV guest spots and TV roles. But, uh, well, he's yeah. on the first season of um, uh, Miss Bliss, which would yes. become Saved by the Bell. Yep, exactly. Um, yep. Yeah. But he was good. You know, expect that like a, for a stand-up comedian to be in that role, he didn't play it for laughs. Like he did he did a really good job of of playing that character well without, you know, going for the going for the funny moments, which I thought was yeah, good. Yeah, he's also on an episode of A Different World where he plays Mr. Gaines' son. Uh, Mr. Gaines runs the pit. Plays mm-hmm. his son Darnell, who gets referenced all through the TV show, and then finally makes an appearance as basically being a guy that just can't do anything, doesn't really have any skills. <laughs> all right, moving right along, because the character of Palmer had some comedic moments, Universal brought in comedians like Jay Leno, Gary Shandling, and Charles Fleischer, among others, but opted to go with actor David Clennon, who was better suited to play the dramatic elements. Clennon had read for the Bennings character, but he preferred the option of playing Palmer's blue collar stoner role to a white-collar science man, his quote. He got his first film role in 1973 with The Paper Chase and followed up with Bound for Glory in 76, Coming Home in 78, and Being There in 79. In his movies, he has worked with acting greats like Jack Lemmon, Sissy Spacek, Meryl Streep, and Susan Tarandon. He moved into TV in the drama The Migrants and then in the classic comedy Barney Miller. He is most famous for his role as Miles Dentrell on the acclaimed drama 30-something, that was a big show in the late 80s that I've never seen an episode of. But anyway. Yeah, I remember when it was a huge show, but I've never seen an episode either. Yeah. And I know Barney Miller because my dad would watch it, but I don't think I've ever seen an episode of Barney Miller either to recognize him in that 
either. But. Yeah, I don't think I've ever watched an episode all the way through. Yeah. All right, moving right along. Powers Booth, Lee Van Cleef, Jerry Orbach, and Kevin Conway were considered for the role of Gary. And Richard Mulligan was also considered when the production experimented with the idea of making the character closer to McReady in age. Masur also read for Gary, but he asked to play Clark instead as he liked the, the character's dialogue and was also a fan of dogs. The role of Gary ended up going to Donald Moffat. On the screen, Moffat began as a TV supporting player with numerous guest roles and hit shows like Hawaii Five-O, Bonanza, Mission Impossible, and Mannix, playing an assortment of judges, doctors, reverends, politicians, and army officers, even a quirky android named Rim in the short-lived CBS series Logan's Run in 1977. His cinematic debut did not come until 68 as the deceased father of Joanne Woodward's titular character in Rachel Rachel, uh, Rachel, Rachel in 1968. Other memorable roles include the shady president and Tom Clancy's clear and present danger in 94 and as Lyndon B. Johnson and the right stuff in 83. So uh, he was definitely a face that I recognized immediately. I knew I'd seen him in other movies. I think the clear and present danger is probably the one I most remember him from as the president, but he's, he, but he does typically play like a politician or a military officer, something like that. I thought he was good in this though. Yeah, he was okay. <laughs> All right, moving along, William Daniels and Brian Dennehy were both considered in playing uh, Dr. Cooper, and it was a last-second decision by Carpenter to go with Richard Dysert. Dysert appeared in other 80s flicks like The Falcon and the Snowman with Timothy Hutton in 85, Mask with Cher and Sam Elliott in 85 as well, as well as Wall Street with Michael Douglas and Charlie Sheen in 87. He's most well-known for the role of Leland McKenzie on the TV show L.A. Law. Another I would have liked Brian Dennehy. In, yeah, and that 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 would have uh, that would have been good. Yeah, once again, another person I didn't really recognize. I wasn't a, I didn't watch L.A. Law. Yeah. So, all right, we've got a few more to cover, and then we'll get to our favorite scenes. We got Charles Callahan as Vance Norris. Callahan spent a good deal of time on stage in L.A. and quickly began racking up television movie credits. He was a regular on the detective series Hunter as a cop and turned in a standout performance as a corrupt racist detective in a story arc on Hill Street Blues. He also appeared in such films as Silkwood with Meryl Streep, Executive Decision with Kurt Russell, and Dante's Peak with Pierce Brosnan. I definitely recognized him from Hunter. I was a big fan of Hunter back in the day, so I recognized him from that that TV show. I loved Hunter. Yeah, uh, but I don't, I don't, I don't remember him from the show. But uh, <laughs> Hunter and Remington Steel were uh, were must see TV in my house uh, oh, yeah. during that time. Yep, yep, definitely. Uh, Joel Polis as Fuchs, one, one another character that disappears early in the movie. So in early drafts, Windows was called Sanchez and later Sanders. The name Windows came when the actor for the role Thomas Waits was in the costume fitting and tried on a large pair of dark glasses, which the character wears in the film. Waits was coming off a role in Injustice for All with Al Pacino in 79. He has continued to work in television with films and roles in Light of Day in 87 with Michael J. Fox. Money Train in 95 with Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson. And he was also on the hit HBO show Oz as Harry Stanton. Did you watch Oz? Is that one of the ones that you watched? I, I watched our last year. I streamed because I got HBO for the first time. And so I streamed Game of Thrones, uh, The Wire and The Sopranos. I did all three gotcha. of those last gotcha. year in 2020. But I, yeah, I've never done the um, never Oz. Done Oz. Gotcha. Yeah. So the only female presence in the film is the voice of McCready's chess computer voiced by Carpenter's then wife, Adrian Barbeau. And I, I remember her. Uh, as yeah. well. She was in the, uh, she was in a lot of stuff in the eighties as well. Mm -hmm. She was in escape from New York. She was in the, the swamp. Escape she was in York, swamp yeah. thing. Swamp thing. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, yep. I definitely remember she did some guest spots on love boat and uh, fantasy Island, if I'm not mistaken as well. Well, who didn't? <laughs> exactly. So it was interesting that it was all men uh, at the camp, but Russell described the all-male story as interesting since the men had no one to posture for without women being present. So he thought it added an, an interesting dynamic to the story to not have any females. So. Well, and I wonder historically in 1982, in the early 80s, on those expeditions, were there female mm -hmm. um, scientists uh, there? I, I mean, I suppose they probably were by then in the 1980s. Yeah, um, yeah, but I don't, I don't know that for sure. And now these messages. 
comic books have been around for almost a century, and in the last two decades, we've finally gotten to see many of these characters brought to life in movies and on TV. On the Moving Panels podcast, we discuss movies and TV shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. Join me and my guests as we discuss both the good and the bad from Marvel, DC, and even some of the lesser-known comic book companies. Learn what is and isn't from the comics, as well as our nerdy review of the movie or show. New episodes drop every Monday, and you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. So join us for Moving Panels, and I'll see you on the other side of the page. Let's talk about uh, favorite scenes or most iconic scenes. I think this one has a few as far as uh, mainly about special effects, I think, than anything else. It's definitely got a few special effects. And I don't want to, um, I don't know if we need to say uh, spoiler alert for a movie that's uh, 40 years old. No. But um, <laughs> the, the ending the ending scene of this movie is, is I think, one of the things that, or, I mean, obviously the special effects, but the ending scene, which gives you a vague kind of up to interpretation decision oh, yeah. as far as if anybody's in, who's infected by the alien is anybody mm-hmm. infected by the alien of, of who's actually left at the end. Right. Um, is, but that open endedness, um, I think helps lead to its cult following. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, the, the, the first scene where we see something, um, we we actually see the alien where the the dog gets mm-hmm. locked in with the other dog. Yeah, the dog that has made its way to their camp that they think is just the dog, and they put it in with the other dogs. And then it, it after they leave, it you know we see that it kind of manifests itself and starts kind of copying and eating mm-hmm. the other dogs or, or whatever it is. So that first scene is, is kind of something we haven't seen before. Yeah, that, that yeah. dog morphing into you don't know what's happening. You're like, what, what right, is right. the stuff is shooting out of it like tentacles to the mm-hmm. other dogs, and and then they're kind of it almost looks like they're being burned. Like if you think about yeah. what an animal or a carcass looks like being burned, but it's it's in the process of of morphing into t- stealing the identity. Um, and then of course the um, the scene where. Uh, uh, again, it's a special effects scene where we get the get the little head. Uh, yeah, yeah, oh of, yeah. <laughs> which made me think of Men in Black is what it made me think of with the <laughs> uh, uh, with the alien and the little and the little head and, and mm-hmm. uh, kind of bouncing around it. Um, but in this, it's it's uh, you know that sounds silly and can be a little silly, but it's still on the scary side. Oh yeah, uh, it's freaky. This movie, the yeah. way they it's freaky. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was going to say, like, I think, you know, once again, seeing this kind of for the first time in the last year, I was kind of tracking with the movie and like, OK, I can see why this is, you know, it's kind of foreboding and not really sure what's going on. And no one had told me anything about, you know, I didn't I didn't have anything, any pre-knowledge going in. Just I wanted to see it kind of for what it was. And when it got to the dog assimilation scene, I was like, wow, this is like. Number one, it's freaking me out because it's, you know, once again, yeah. using real practical effects, not CGI. It doesn't look cartoonish. Not that it looks necessarily real, but because it's practical, it has more of a real feel to it, I guess, for me. Um, and it was just kind of freaky. And of course, you know, there's it, it drags on a little too long in some spots because like just burn it. Why are you standing there watching? But, you know, it's kind of yeah. like, let you know, we're special <clears throat> effects guys. Let, let us show you all that we can do in the, this two or three minutes. Uh, but that scene was for sure very iconic, and uh, the the other scene uh, that really got me was when they're trying to revive uh, Wilford Brimley. No, not Wilford Brimley. It was the uh, it was the other guy that got knocked out. Uh, the guy from Hunter that got that got knocked out, and right. uh, he's giving him CPR, and then his chest opens up, and you know cuts off his arms, and his head falls off like some little thing you know floating around or you know becomes like the spider with the head uh all that was really kind of really freaky but my my ultimate favorite scene is the blood the blood test scene like just the tension of that scene is fantastic of because you don't know i mean you i mean what the great thing about this movie is it doesn't let the audience know anything more than really McCready or any of the other characters that we're seeing on screen. No, no, we don't, we have no outside knowledge that lets us know, Oh, it's going to be this guy. Like we're, we're left to guess just like they do, which I think once again, 
gives it a, a better depth of a, of a movie than just a typical, you know, horror movie. And it has his little jump scares and stuff here and there, but that's such a great scene, which I read this, but I mean, I saw this before rewatching it. So I, I did check its accuracy. So an eye light was used to create a gleam in the eyes of all the actors, actors in the blood test scene, except for Palmer. So that's how you would know he was the one that was right. infected which I thought was really cool. And it's not very, it's very subtle. It's not very evident. And then of course that caused me to, at the very end, when it's just uh child's and McCready, there's a, there's, there's a bean, there's a, a glean in McCready's eyes, which we already know he's not infected, but child's I can never see the glean in his eyes. So that makes me think, and of course it's open ended. No one's ever said, uh, and I think Carpenter's even said both ways. Like he's, he's told one, one audience, McCready killed them all. And another one that, no, there was, you know, uh, one of them was, was infected, but I didn't see a glean in child's eyes at the end, which could have just been the lighting for that scene. But yeah, I saw. Um, and like you said, he's he's kind of jumped around a little bit. But the one that I saw just said that one of the two at the end was infected mm-hmm. and one was not. But by then he had told them to not use the the um, glean of the eye oh. as, as a, a <laughs> telling factor at that time right and that's where the debate comes up because mccready has has been um so adamant of we all need to die we all need to die we Mm -hmm. all need to die and then he's like well let's just sit here and freeze to death (laughs) after he had just said a little earlier right that's what the alien wants to do is that they're freezing this so then that makes you kind of yeah yeah okay well is it you then and then (laughs) you know but then the other guy uh, has disappeared for a big stretch of yeah, the movie and yeah. then come back and be like, Oh, I was just lost. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Well, that's, you know, so it, it's, that's what I'm saying. That's the good thing. I guarantee you, if you, if you went to like a, a, a fan group of this movie, that there's probably a 10,000 page thread of people <laughs> debating which oh, one yeah. Yeah. Uh, or both or neither uh, is, is infected. That would probably yeah. be pretty interesting with things that you and I are, are both missing. Yeah, because there were there were things about um, I think one of them talk, makes a comment about when the alien takes over, it, it kicks out anything that's unnatural or like uh, like basically like any piercings and fillings or whatever are gone. But Childs is wearing an earring at the end, so he can't be infected because if he was, the earring would be gone. And I want to say one of the characters, the older guys, and I, I wish I wrote it down, is wearing a nose ring in this movie. And I don't think I realized that. In when I first watched it, but watching it this time, I was able to rent it in you know the high definition or whatever. And I kept thinking, I was like, is he is there like a glare? But he's got like a ring, like a nose ring on his. And I was like, was that a common thing for a fifty year old man to wear in the early eighties in Antarctica? In nineteen eighty two. Yeah, that was a very it was yeah. a very interesting choice, and I would love to know what the motivation <laughs> for that was. It was such an odd. It was such an odd choice. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll try to find a screenshot and I'll, uh, I'll send it to you and, uh, I'll post it. Interesting. I I didn't notice it. Now I want to go back and look for it. Hopefully Sydney wants to watch it so I can go. (laughs) Oh, somebody said nose rings became popular in the U S in the sixties. It's entirely possible. He got it back then in his younger days and just kept it. Oh, okay. Somebody said it was straight up the actor's choice, but considering how popular nose rings in the sixties, it's quite possible. That's when copper got it. But as someone else said, you're certainly not the average doctor for living in Antarctica. Somebody just said midlife crisis. <laughs> uh, well, that could be too. So any other scenes you want to discuss before we jump into some trivia? No, I'm good. Okay. All right. So John Carpenter has stated that of all his films, this is his personal favorite. I could kind of see that. A tradition in British Antarctic research stations they watched the thing as part of their midwinter feast and celebration held every June 21st. Well, I'm not sure if I'd want to watch this movie from on an Antarctic uh, research station. <laughs> See, I would, I would say it should be must watch <laughs> viewing if you're on. I think that's fantastic. That's, that's like you should be on a lake in a houseboat. You should have to watch Jaws. Even oh, there the you go. The ocean. Right, like right. you should, it should be required to be on a body of water and watch a movie <laughs> with a shark tearing apart a boat wow yeah so to give the illusion of icy antarctic conditions interior sets on the los angeles sound stages were refrigerated down to 40 degrees fahrenheit 
while it was well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit outside. So they did have, and I know they talked about they were uh, originally their producers wanted to actually film in like walk in freezers, like those kind of areas, like larger uh, freezer warehouses. But they said that the, the spaces were too tight to get the filming they wanted. So they had to build it themselves. Uh, John Carpenter has commented that one of the Bush pilots used on the film offered to crash one of the helicopters for extra money. When McReady and Dr. Cooper go to visit the Norwegian camp via helicopter, the Bush pilot actually turned the controls over to Kurt Russell once the chopper was off the ground. If you watch the shot, you'll see the copter actually wobble. They said that's Russell taking the controls. (laughs) Ah, (laughs) okay. So I love that it said uh, Keith David wears gloves throughout the throughout most of the film. That's because he had broken one of his hands in a car accident before filming and needed to cover up the cast. So, of course, in this kind of movie, everybody's wearing gloves most of the time. I don't think I saw anybody's natural fingers very often. Um, and all of the shots of someone getting the needle in the arm when they're doing the blood samples, that arm was the same person. It was one of the crew that said you could stick him as much as you want. It didn't bother him. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. I wonder what happened to that crew member. I wonder where, where they uh, are today. I think Russell said he, he's, he, he figured he was probably either in rehab or jail uh, by this point. But uh, <laughs> So uh, I didn't do too much. I didn't want to dig too deep into the special effects, but Rob Bowton is the one who actually did the special effects or most of the special effects. Uh, it was one of his first jobs. And he actually had to be hospitalized from exhaustion. He would work so much on the special effects and basically sleep in different areas of the set. And, uh, and one day, uh, Carpenter went up, walked up and said, you don't look so good. And he was like, yeah, I'll make it. He said, no, <clears throat> you need to go to the hospital right away. And he had, had to be hospitalized for a couple of days due to exhaustion. So oh, wow. uh, he uh, exhaustion, double pneumonia and a bleeding ulcer is what he was diagnosed with. Uh, it also says that Bowden suffered from nightmares of the creatures he was creating. And that's a little too freaky. Uh, the dog thing was actually created by Stan Winston, who declined screen credit as he didn't want to take away from Rob Bowden's work. Uh, but Mr. Winston receives a special thank you in the closing credits. So, uh, And I think he actually had to be there that day when they filmed it, uh, the, uh, the dog assimilation scene, because that was when Bowden was actually in the hospital. What I did find interesting is that like we talked about, John Carpenter has a specific sound because he typically does the own music for his movies, but he did not do the music for this movie. Uh, uh, the composer, Ennio Morricone, I'm going to totally mess up his name. If you saw it, you'd, you'd recognize it. Um, but unused music composed for the film was later used in Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight. Ironically, Morricone's Thing score was nominated for a Razzie for worst score when it came out while his score for Hateful Eight, which used parts of the same score, won him an Oscar. <laughs> so just goes to show. But he did say yeah. that he 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 was he didn't want to create a score completely on his own. He tried to make it sound like something that Carpenter would compose himself, which I thought he did he did accomplish because like I said, it has those definite sounds, those synth sounds that uh Carpenter is known for in his movies. Absolutely. And now, these messages. What's up, dudes? I'm Jerry D of Totally Rad Christmas, the podcast that talks all things Christmas in the 80s. Toys, movies, specials, music, books, fashion, and fads. If it was gnarly during Christmas in the 80s, he's got it covered. Wait, is there a lot of things to talk about for the 80s and Christmas? Well, you got the movie giants like Christmas Vacation, Scrooge, and A Christmas Story. There are TV specials like Muppet Family Christmas, Claymation Christmas Celebration, and a Garfield Christmas special. Plus classics shown every year. You also jam out to Last Christmas, Do They Know It's Christmas, and Christmas and Hollis. But most of all, it was a time for the most bodacious, best-selling Christmas toys ever, like He-Man, G.I. Joe, Transformers, and Cabbage Patch Kids. Yes, them too. We cover them all, plus much more, including standard segments like Hap Hap Happiest Memory, Gagging with the Spoon, The Other Half of the Battle, and Chant with the Littles. So tune in to Totally Rad Christmas everywhere you get your podcasts. Turn the clock back and dive into those warm and fuzzy memories. Later, dudes! Alright, well, we had there was a few deleted and omitted scenes in the movie. We'll talk about a few of them. Uh, several scenes in the script were omitted from the film 
sometimes because there was too much dialogue that slowed the pace and undermined the suspense. Carpenter blamed some of the issues on his directorial method, noting that several scenes appeared to be repeating events or information. Another scene featuring a snowmobile chase pursuing dogs was removed from the shooting script as it would have been too expensive to film. One scene present in the film but not in the script features a monologue by McReady. Carpenter added this partly to establish what was happening in the story and because he wanted to highlight Russell's heroic character after taking over the camp. Carpenter said that Lancaster's experience writing ensemble pieces did not emphasize single characters. Since Halloween, several horror films had replicated many of the scare elements of the film, something Carpenter wanted to move away from for The Thing. He removed scenes from Lancaster's script that had been filmed, such as a body suddenly falling into view at the Norwegian camp, which he felt was too cliched. Approximately three minutes of screens were filmed from Lancaster's script that elaborated on the characters' backgrounds. So Carpenter struggled with the method of conveying to the audience what assimilation by the creature actually meant. Lancaster's original set piece of Benning's death had him being pulled beneath a sheet of ice by the thing before resurfacing in different areas and various stages of assimilation. The scene called for a set to be built on one of Universal's largest stages with sophisticated hydraulics, dogs, and flamethrowers but it was deemed too costly to produce. A scene was filmed with Bennings being murdered by an unknown assailant, but it was felt that assimilation leading to his death was not explained enough. Short on time and with no interior sets remaining, a small set was built. Maloney was covered with KY jelly, orange dye, and rubber tentacles. Monster gloves for a different creature were repurposed to demonstrate partial assimilation. So that was an interesting scene where he, you know, they find him running out of the... uh, the camp and all you see is just his hands and like the little claw figures, whatever, before they kind of set him on fire. So I know you liked the ending, but you know, there were multiple endings for the, for the thing that they, Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. So Carpenter actually filmed multiple endings, including a happier quote unquote ending because editor Todd Ramsey thought that the bleak nihilistic conclusion would not test well with audiences. In an alternate take, McCready is rescued and given a blood test that proves he is not infected. Carpenter said that stylistically this ending would have been cheesy. Editor Verna Fields was tasked with reworking the ending to add clarity and resolution. It was finally decided to create an entirely new scene, which omitted the suspicion of Childs being infected by removing him completely, leaving McCready alone. This new ending tested only slightly better with audiences than the original, and the production team agreed to the studio's request to use it. It was set to go to print for theaters when the producers, Carpenter and executive Helena Hacker, decided the film was better left with ambiguity instead of nothing at all. Carpenter gave his approval to restore the ambiguous ending, but a scream was inserted over the outpost explosion to posit the monster's death. Universal executive Sidney Scheinberg disliked the ending's nihilism and, according to Carpenter, said, think about how the audience react if they see the thing die with a giant orchestra playing. Carpenter later noted that both the original ending and the ending without child tested poorly with audiences, which he interpreted as the film simply not being heroic enough. That's funny about the, about the orchestra playing. That, <laughs> I've been trying to imagine that happening and you're, yeah, that, that I could see that not going over well. Yeah. Yeah. But you could tell, like, I will say of all of the special effects, the ending special effects is my least favorite because it's that kind of stop motion effect when he's yeah. underground and like, it doesn't, I'm glad it's short because I think they tried to make it too long. It would have lost some of the effect of it, but it didn't like trying to create this bigger monster than we had seen so far. I don't think it accomplished it as well as it, it as they wanted to. And it could have been money and time why it didn't get as, as, as good as they wanted. But, um, but yeah, that was the one effect that I thought just didn't, didn't hold up as well as the others, especially, you know, nowadays. Well, and that would explain why that's, I mean, that's not what either one of us gave us an, uh, an answer on, <laughs> on the, on the iconic scenes. I mean, true, true. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I almost had forgotten about it just that quickly uh, until, until you brought it back up. So yeah, it doesn't definitely doesn't stand out as a, as a favorite. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the releasing of the movie. So the lack of information about the film's special effects drew the attention of film exhibitors in the early night in early 1982 they wanted a reassurance that the thing was a first-rate production capable of attracting audiences. Cohen and Foster, with a specially employed editor and Universal's archive of music, 
put together a 20 minute showreel emphasizing action and suspense. They used available footage, including alternate and extended scenes, not in the finished film, but avoided revealing the special effects as much as possible. The reaction from the exclusively male exhibitors was generally positive, and Universal executive Robert Ramey told Cohen that the studio was counting on the thing's success as they expected E.T., the extraterrestrial, to appeal only to children. While finalizing the film, Universal sent Carpenter a demographic study showing that the audience appeal of horror movies had declined by 70% over the previous six months. Carpenter considered this a suggestion that he lower his expectations of the film's performance. After one market research screening, Carpenter queried the audience on their thoughts, and one audience member asked, well, what happened at the very end? Which one was the thing? When Carpenter responded, it was up to their imagination. The audience member responded, oh, God, I hate that. <laughs> Don't leave it up to me. <laughs> right, right. You, you have to tell me what happened. So after returning from a screening of E.T., the audience's silence at the Thing trailer caused Foster to remark, we're dead. The response to public pre-screenings of the Thing resulted in the studio changing the somber black and white advertising approved by the producers to a color image of a person with a glowing face. The tagline was also changed from man is the warmest place to hide written by Stephen Frankfurt, who wrote the alien tagline in space. No one can hear you scream. And they changed it to the ultimate and alien terror trying to capitalize on aliens audience. Carpenter attempted to make a last minute change the film's title to who goes there to no avail. The week before its release, Carpenter promoted the film with clips on late night with David Letterman. In 1981, horror magazine Fangoria held a contest encouraging readers to submit drawings of what the thing would look like. Winners were rewarded with a trip to Universal Studios. On its opening day, a special screening was held at the Hollywood Pacific Theater, presided over by Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with free admission of those in costume as monsters. So I don't think they knew how to market this film. That's what I think, which is typical with John Carpenter movies, it seems. Yeah, I would like to point out, too, if they were offering a contest to Universal Studios in 1981, that's the actual Universal Studios movie theater. There was no Universal theme park in 1981. <laughs> right. Uh, but you're right. They they definitely seemed. And, and it is. It's, I mean, it's a little sci-fi. It's a little horror. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a little gory. Um, I mean, it is a little, I guess, difficult to market, especially in 1981, 1982. Yeah. Um, uh, I would like to, uh, and I may go try to find the YouTube clip. I would like to see him on Letterman. Um, yeah, talking about Carpenter. It. Yeah, Carpenter and Letterman together would be, um, um, Letterman <laughs> has always been one of my favorites. I'd, I'd like to see that interview and see how it went. Yeah, I'm going to try to look for that myself. So, so the thing was released in the United States on June 25th, 1982. During its opening weekend, the film earned $3.1 million from 840 theaters, finishing as number eight film of the weekend behind Supernatural Horror Poltergeist, which made $4.1 million, which was in its fourth weekend of release and ahead of action film Megaforce. It dropped out of the top 10 grossing films after three weeks. It ended its run earning a total of $19.6 million, against its $15 million budget, making it only the 42nd highest grossing film of 1982. It was not a box office failure, but it was also not a hit. According to John Carpenter, it takes it, he takes all his failed movies pretty hard, but the film's initial and negative reception disappointed him the most. Not only was it not a box office hit, but critics panned its gory effects, tone, and character. The reviews in this are, were just, terrible yeah. though i mean they almost universally just hated yeah uh, yeah everything that you read at that time like to the point that you you read some of these reviews that are like this is terrible like it's like one of the worst movies ever made and then you watch the movie and you're like mm-hmm. i can almost off the top <laughs> of my head give you a hundred movies right. that are right far far worse than than the thing yeah uh, so Carpenter was particularly upset when Christian Nyby, the director of the original The Thing from Another World, publicly denounced Carpenter's version, saying, if you want blood, go to the slaughterhouse. All in all, it's a terrific commercial for J&B Scotch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess there's some truth to that. Yeah. In response- you had something to drink to warm you up when you're in the, at exactly. the bottom of the planet. Exactly. Not that like they had a whole lot of options where they were. You could go to the store and buy something else. Yeah. Uh, In response to the commercial bombing of the film, the studio canceled the multi-picture deal they had with Carpenter, 
who noted that his career would have been different if the film had been successful. Not surprisingly, he was extremely relieved when the film enjoyed a rich cult success following its home video release, along with the critical reevaluation it received. So Rotten Tomatoes uh, has it at 82% on the tomato meter with a 92% audience score. IMDb has it at 8.1 out of 10 with a 57 on Metacritic. Really high scores. Yeah. Really high scores. Probably one of the highest scored movies that, that we've done. Yeah, yeah. Especially in this genre, for sure. Um, oh, definitely. Yeah. But uh, I don't know if it's a 92 for me. I would put it in, like, I think 82 is pretty good. I put it in the 80s range for me. Uh, like I said, yeah, I just at around 80. Yeah. The the ending, uh, not the, the very end, but like that last battle, you know, after uh, Wilford Brimley kind of takes over. Um, because the effects don't don't hold up as well, um, that part kind of takes it down a notch or two for me. But overall, it's great, and it's one that I, you know, even watching it again yesterday, I was like, I could see myself watching this again. Like it's one I, I would look forward to seeing again. Probably not like every year, but you know, every couple of years, pull, pulling it back out and watching it um, will be enjoyable. I think. So I'm going to rewrite the ending of the movie for you. I'm, I'm, I'm going to make it uh, make make it better. All right. Go so for it's it. Kurt Russell and Wilfred Brimley that survive. Okay. They're sitting there, and as they're kind of having their little conversation, and you don't know if one of them is infected or not, the little alien crawls up and takes the form of <laughs> Wilfred Brimley's mustache, and then the movie goes off. And then you know the rest of Wilfred Brimley's career, his mustache has been an alien <laughs> that has just been living on the front of his face. Or, You're welcome. Yeah. There you Send go. your comment cards to Tim Williams. <laughs> oh my goodness. That would be funny. Uh, it would be funny if like he showed back up at the end with the mustache. Like, how'd you get that mustache so fast? And he's like, uh, don't ask too many questions. Um, yeah. And then that's how he's known for the rest of his career is that mustache. And like, okay, is he still an alien? What happened? Yeah. Little I like pieces it. Of oatmeal hanging off the bottom of it. <laughs> for, for, Forbearing his days of a Quaker Oats spokesperson. Yeah, now I didn't I didn't put it in the 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 notes, but he was on a TV show for a while in the eighties too. Uh, Our house or our Our house, house. our house, our house. Yeah, and I think I remember watching it. I don't remember anything about it, but I I remember watching, or maybe I just remember the commercials for it. But I remember that show. It was kind of one of those family, um, eight is enough type of. 80s show i guess yeah i believe um i want to say alfred woodard was on that oh okay um, as well um it was one of the first shows to have a prominent um actor on the show uh who um had some form of uh disability i I want to say it was a a main character on the show who had down syndrome okay well i know that was uh uh, shannon doherty was on that as well no the one chad Chad allen chad allen am i getting you're getting life two goes shows. On. I'm life getting, goes I'm on. Getting yeah. and life goes on. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was like, I remember that show. That that was, I think that was like the '90s when uh, Life Goes On. I love Life Goes On. That was one of my favorite shows. Um, uh, yeah, our house has a 93% uh, like percentage, uh, but uh, Chad Allen and um, yeah, yeah, and uh, Shannon Doherty were, were the, I guess, the kids on that mm-hmm. show before she rose to 90210 fame. And you know, Wilfred Brimley has prominently featured on his face in our house. A mustache. A mustache. <laughs> That's how we know him. That's when we That's knew who he was. So. All right. Just last little bit here. The Sci-Fi Channel planned to make a four-hour miniseries sequel in 2003, but nothing ever came of it. A companion piece, however, was eventually produced in 2011, also titled The Thing. It served as both a remake and a prequel it tells the story of the Norwegian camp and leads directly into the 1982 film. So I'm going to probably check that one out now that I've seen this one, which Laramie had told me about that one. He said, it's actually, it's pretty, it's not as good as the original, but it's, it's, it's pretty good. He said it, it does lead right into like, you could watch it, you know, back to back and lead right into the, uh, the 82 movie, which I think is pretty, pretty cool concept. Okay. Yeah. Well, you watch it and then report back to me. Let me know. Yeah. And I was wondering, I said, I wonder if, if uh, Sydney has seen that one since that's more recent. So she maybe saw the remake, the thing without the source material. Without and, even knowing it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll ask. And she just texted me and said, she'll be home tomorrow. So. Cool deal. All right. Well, that's all the show we got for this episode. 
Thanks so much, Ron, for being a part. Anything else you want to add about the thing or Wilford Brimley or anything? Uh, <laughs> no, I'm going to get started on some theme song ideas for you, though. There we, you go. Uh, when we uh, hang up and I'll, I'll send them to you and then you can uh, break out your guitar and uh, um, uh, definitely better idea that you sing than I sing. <laughs> but uh, I could play some kazoo or some spoons okay. or uh, right. uh, something like that in the background if if, uh, if you need it. Sydney will be home for a couple of days so maybe I'll be get her to record. Something. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. But, um, yeah. yeah, we'll, we'll see what we can come up with. I'll see if I can reach out to Chris Pratt on social media. Maybe he, he'll uh, do us a solid since we're such big fans of his. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, just you know, we need to make sure we have that '80s uh, sound to it. Oh to yeah, keep, uh, keep consistent with the podcast. I agree. I agree. I'm sure we can find some '80s one-hit wonder bands that aren't doing anything right now. Maybe <laughs> they can put some. We find some Oingo Boingo or um, some Thompson Twins or somebody. Yeah, and, uh, maybe uh, they can. Pep, maybe they can do something for us. Pep Shop, Pep Boys. Shop Boys. There you go. Yeah, there we go. Bananarama. There you go. Can, there uh, you go. New shoes. New shoes. I watched uh, Forty Eight Hours. Um, oh, okay. I think yesterday, and um, the Bus Boys. Oh, um, they're the ones. The boys are back in town. Boys are back in town. Then they also have a song on the Ghostbusters uh, soundtrack <laughs> um, as well. And I was like, that's and I love those two songs. They're fantastic songs. And then I was like, just nothing else. They actually opened for Eddie Murphy on one of his comedy tours. I'm delirious. I think. But, oh um, wow. Yeah. So well, um, if maybe, I, I, maybe we get them as well. As an 80s podcast that talks about 80s movies, I think the dream would be have to have the the go-to 80s movie theme song, singer-songwriter, Kenny Loggins. If we get him to do the, 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 the theme song, we might we might reach stellar status. I think you're thinking way too small. We we this podcast is bigger than this, my friend. We need like a ready for the uh uh, um, uh, we are the world. I'm gonna say ready for the world, uh, which would be like the 80s as well. But we are the world. We need a little bit of everybody. We're oh, getting okay. Cindy Lauper. We're getting Kenny Loggins. We're, there you uh, go. We're, bring, we're bringing the band back together. Get Survivor. Uh, everybody that's made that that's made a a contribution to 80s movies. We can build this podcast on rock and roll. We could. We could. <laughs> uh, Jefferson. Oh, no, not Jefferson Starship. Just Starship. That did we built the just Starship? Right? Yeah, got yeah. it. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. We could ramble on for another fifteen minutes about our favorite <laughs> songs, which, which we will w- once we end the podcast. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Uh, be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast. Tell your friends. Tell three friends about the Eighties Quick Flashback Podcast, and uh, we'll see you guys next time. Hey. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Eighties Flick Flashback Podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, we have a few ways for you to do just that. One way is to send us an email to movieviewspodcast at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voice message through the Anchor app. You can find the link to leave a voice message in our episode show notes. Another way to reach us is through our social media pages. Search for 80s Flick Flashback on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Be sure to give us a five-star rating along with a stellar written review. And don't forget to follow us on Apple and Spotify as well. No matter which podcasting platform you're listening to us on, be sure to read the episode show notes to find more fun facts and behind-the-scenes trivia we just weren't able to fit into today's episode. Well, that's all for now. Join us again next time for another 80s Flick Flashback. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go.